0: Hello, everyone. Good evening. Welcome uh, to LSE. Um, My name is Saul Estrin. I'm a professor of management here uh, and will be chairing this evening's uh, public lecture. Um, As as many of you will know, this is uh, um, a lecture in our series on uh, management in the global um, age. And the Department of Management is is running this series, I think, to celebrate the fact that it exists, so to speak. We're, We're a relatively new department bringing together a series of uh, former bumps uh, in, in LSE, focused to management questions. Uh, we'll be moving to our new building, which is uh, most of the way to being finished uh, on Kingsway and between Kingsway and Lincoln's Inn fields uh, in the summer and launching um, a lot of new courses over the next year or two. And so I, this uh, lecture series uh, is really about LA, uh, management playing a greater role in intellectual life Um, of the LSE. Um, We're very happy uh, today to welcome uh, Dominic Cassidy. Uh, Dominic is a managing partner of McKinsey for the UK and uh, Ireland. He's had a very long and distinguished career in management in the UK and also in the USA and in Hong Kong. And his main focus, I think, has been on financial institutions. There's a lot of information about his distinguished career in in the uh, bump related to the lecture. Um, The topic that he's going to talk about today... Uh, is the global company in 2020? Um, this room is uh, is packed, um, and I guess that's partly a tribute to him uh, and to the company he comes from, and partly because it's um, really a very excellent topic for this uh, uh, for this time, for this time of great uh, economic and financial uncertainty, and a um, um, time uh, uh, when we're really not clear uh, where the global economy is going. Um, I was thinking about this, it reflects possibly my age, but of course 2020 some time ago sounds a long time ago, (laughs) a long time to go, but it's actually surprisingly close. It's not a very long range uh, view we're getting on firms, but nonetheless, um, uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to hear what Dominic has to say. The arrangements or what we're going to do this evening is very straightforward. Dominic will talk for perhaps half an hour, 35 minutes, something like that. Uh, and then we'll go over to questions and answers. If you could hold off your questions until we get to the Q&A session, uh, there will be people around. Uh, uh, I'll take over the chair and you can ask me questions and we'll take it from there. Uh, and we'll go on, uh, well, either as long as there are questions or if there are too many questions, we'll have to uh, bring this to a close after an hour or a bit. Uh, hour so. Okay, so with no more ado, I'm very pleased to welcome Dominic to give his lecture.
1: Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, well, I'm delighted to be here this evening. Um, uh, thank you all very much for coming. Uh, I have to say that uh, it's very exciting to be here. Um, and uh, as you see, the title of the discussion today is The Global Company of 2020. What does the future hold? So I'm here to talk about the future, but of course... Um, maybe it would be sensible to get a little context to begin with, so I want to start by talking about the past. Um, And look particularly back of the past 20 years, and I'm just going to highlight a few random points about the past 20 years to provide a little context to our discussion about the future. One point, last 20 years, population. Population of our happy planet grew by 34%. From about 5 billion in 1987 to about 6.7 billion in 2007, that translated into about 4.3 people being born every second. Um, So, a critical relevant point is that the markets we're talking about here were growing uh, during this period. Growing, the underlying growth was quite significant. Um, One element of that, of course, was the incredible increase in trade and capital flows. Uh, GDP, by the way, has grown quite robustly during this period since uh, 1980 at about 5, 5.5% five uh, annually. But trade and capital flows grew much faster uh, at close to uh, 7% and over 8% respectively. And, of course, they grew even faster in the last 10 years. So we've had growing markets and we've had growing trade and capital flows. Uh, we've also seen an enormous change during this period, the last 20 years, in the uh, complexity and efficiency of new financial instruments which have facilitated uh, all sorts of positive things and a few bumps along the way, as we've seen recently. Uh, of course, this period was also uh, epitomized by the rise of the BRIC economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, which have really changed uh, the face of consumption and production, as we know it, uh, in the world, and as well as shifting uh, geopolitical uh, balance. And underpinning all this, by the way, is that the, however much we might uh, uh, not notice it, is that the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, the broad acceptance of the importance of wealth creation, has underpinned this period in the United States, in Europe, and indeed in Eastern Europe as well, as well as most of Asia. Now, against that backdrop, this period has resulted in great times for the corporate world, um, with strong value creation during this time. Uh, Looking at uh, markets, despite recent market corrections, Uh, The FTSE 100 rose three times during this period, and 1987 to 2007, the S&P 500 seven times. Um, And so in the context of today's topic of looking to the future, we must recognize the strong period we've been through, and we should also recognize that there was general acceptance, despite all sorts of interesting academic arguments around it, that global companies made sense, both in terms of scale by allowing the leveraging of costs uh, and global processes, Uh, and uh, in respect of human capital, allowing companies to draw on wider pools of capital and to replicate successful skills development around the world. And, frankly, the results are clear. In constant dollars, the market capitalization of the top 150 global companies tripled between 1995 and 2005, and there was some rationale to that. Their revenues grew by 50%, but their net income by 150%. But there's another side to this. We also saw something called the topple rate of companies that fell out of the highest revenue quintile increased threefold since the early 1970s, evidence that globalization and the global markets can work both ways. They create enormous opportunity, Uh, for the winners, but they also create enormous pressures to keep up success. So, quick background. And so the question must be, what next? What can the experience of the past 20 years teach us about what the global company of 2020 is going to need? And is it dealing effectively with today's challenges? And how can we equip ourselves going forward into what is undoubtedly a complex uh, an uncertain world but full of lots of opportunities. So it's great to be here today to share some thoughts about the future. These are partly my own personal reflections and partly drawn upon those of my colleagues at McKinsey and the research of the, global, of the McKinsey Global Institute, which is our economic research arm. Uh, and as the professor said, I'm going to talk for about half an hour and then we'll do questions. So, what will the successful global company of 2020 actually look like? Well, in reality, I'd say there is not going to be a single model. Of course, there will be the giant national multinational probably headquartered in a Western uh, country uh, trading the world. But there is also going to be the 20 to 1,000 person highly connected enterprise, which frankly has no fixed headquarters. And obviously, much in the news these days, there will be the BRIC headquarter company, which is mirroring and even overtaking some of its Western counterparts. So when you think of the global company of 2020, think of various different um, variations on the theme. But however it is designed, I believe that the global company of 2020 will face a series of five market or revenue opportunities and we'll need to address five key managerial challenges in order to exploit those opportunities. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about those five revenue uh, or market opportunities and then we're going to talk about the managerial uh, challenges. So let's talk about the market and revenue opportunities. Uh, And the first of these, I think, has to be to think about managing the portfolio effectively. Um, they're going to be, global companies are going to be in the middle of an enormously diverse range of opportunities and economic activity and changing global dynamics. And a critical question is going to be, how do they manage through all that? Look at the transformation of Dubai, as shown here. Um, is, did you know that it is the highest ratio of construction cranes per capita in the world? And if you visit there, it's all too visible, let me assure you yet it's only the 224th largest city by population size. So the, the dynamics are extraordinary here. And across the globe, we're seeing low-cost countries increasingly becoming sources of capital, research, product innovation, management skill, and new enterprises. New pathways are opening up for goods, services, and capital, which are complementing and, in some cases, supplanting long-standing patterns. Now, our research shows that only 10% of net cross border capital flows currently come from emerging markets, but it's growing very fast. And its signs are everywhere. Consider that in 2000, the US accounted for nine out of every $10 raised in IPOs. By 2005, that figure had fallen to one out of $10 raised. So the changes in capital flows are upon us. But what's equally important to remember is that old centers of power are uh, not going away in terms of overall demand and the supply of intellectual and financial capital. In many markets, the existing developed markets will remain extremely important. They will represent the majority of available profits and the majority of profit growth in absolute terms. The challenge, therefore, for the 2020 company is to be able to balance the scale of these developed markets and their continuing importance, with the excitement and dynamism of the emerging markets. Against this backdrop, we are seeing significant changes in the consumer landscape, which are creating real opportunities and challenges for global companies. The number of consumers globally is set to double, double over the next decade. And at the same time, we expect tastes to homogenize to some degree and spending patterns to shift. Let's talk about developing markets first. Over 1 billion new consumers will be added during this period. Now, they will have relatively low purchasing power, but it will still be over $5,000 per annum per household per year. Now, global companies of 2020 will need to develop new value propositions to go after these consumers and tailor their offerings to meet them. For example, let's take Brazil's um, apparel market, which is growing about 7% a year uh, and is the fifth largest in the world already. But where very few global retailers play, if you actually go and wander around the major markets in Brazil, you don't see many of the global uh, brand names competing. Prospective entrants who want to play are going to have to develop new skills in areas specific to that market uh, and provide competitive credit offerings, for instance, and tailored merchandising expertise specific to the Brazilian market. You're going to have to play to go after these new consumers, develop new pack and price combinations. For example, in China, IKEA had to take down its prices to 30% of its developed market levels to compete And, of course, we've all seen uh, Tata's nano car going to retail at $2,500 and change the way in which transportation takes place uh, in developing markets and maybe beyond. So the consumers are growing, but their demands are different, and uh, the demographics and buying points are different. Distribution is different. For instance, in, in India, 98% of retail occurs outside of organized distribution channels today. So you're going to have to think about different distribution channels. And you're going to have to dig deep as a global company of 2020. Let's talk about China again. How many companies really understand that the markets they focus on and hear about, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen, which are the four big markets which most of the press covers, actually together only account for 12% of Chinese urban consumption. And that there's a whole level of tier two and tier three cities where actually our research shows that consumer buying attitudes are fundamentally different from from those that are reported from those big four cities. The best companies will have to invest to get behind the headlines and dig deep into these new emerging markets. And finally, these companies should not underestimate the market represented by the most affluent in the emerging markets. Let's look at India. This group is defined by those who earn more than 1 million rupees per year, which is about $22,000 in 2000 terms, but is equivalent to over $100,000 in PPP terms. Um, That is a very important group. It represents about 2% of the population by 2025, but that's 24 million people. So, again, these markets, the developing markets, are going to be extremely complex and very segmented. And the companies for 2020 are going to have to understand that and dig deep to understand them. Let's talk about developed economies. Boring, aren't they? No growth, no opportunity. Why would you want to bother focusing on those? Well, by 2015, the developed markets will spend 16 times more than the developing markets, 16 times more and important segments will develop. By 2015, the Hispanic population in the United States will have spending power equal to 60% of the entirety of the Chinese market, just the Hispanic population in the United States. Therefore, this is the challenge. Global companies of 2020 will have to reflect on how to serve the developed markets that are very large but growing slowly yet constantly changing in needs and tastes, and which are extremely competitive and where there will be easier access to information and more comparison of prices. So you can't avoid the developed markets. They're absolutely critical, but they're going to become harder and harder to compete in. And therefore, the leading companies of 2020, while watching at growth, are also going to have to balance the different needs of different markets. Let's take a look at the second revenue opportunity. Which is to capitalize on the technological revolution. We see the markets are getting bigger and the markets are changing. But they're fundamentally more interconnected. We all know about Facebook. Has over 60 million active users. Think about that. That's 1% of the entire population in four years. It's a really extraordinary phenomenon. Technology is flourishing and it's transforming relationships and communities and has enormous implications for the company of 2020. In effect, we're seeing the interactions between producers and consumers shifting from what you might describe as monologue to dialogue. The most dynamic business models are now based upon serving customers, also creating the tools for customers to serve themselves. Advances in information technology are benefiting both businesses and consumers. Businesses are closer to consumers and consumers are themselves becoming market makers. And in this highly competitive environment, winning companies will have to produce and test real-time information to better understand changes in consumer tastes. Now, we all know that technology is rarely the way to unlock economic value by itself. And successful companies will have to combine it with new ways of doing business if they are to create true competitive advantage and this will mean in developing economies they will have to learn how to reinvent their operating models to reflect the different economics while in developed economies it will require constant focus on the next new attraction right, let's talk about the third challenge which is about resources I think we believe that in 2020, the global companies of 2020 will have to deal with a world where resources are a constant battlefield. As the world and its developing economies continue growing, the imbalance between supply and demand uh, will, we think, be exacerbated. Even uh, Aramco now, uh, pictured here on the left of this slide, generally a bullish company is starting to question whether it can actually meet the demands of consumers for the 50% increase in oil demand in the next two decades. And yet there are new technologies emerging. On the right, we show the 5,800 solar panels on the roof of the FedEx facility in Oakland, California. The second largest of its kind in the uh, U.S. provides 80% of the facility's peak load requirements. So companies are going to have to manage their exposure to new sets of risks associated with scarce resources, but also the potential consequences of their substitutes. For example, the change in the price of corn because of the fad we're going through at the moment around ethanol production in the United States. Global companies will also have to deal with the shift towards a low-carbon economy. We think this is real. This is not a fad. Uh, And the exact implications for business are not completely precise, but you can talk about a few of them. You can see that companies are going to have to face up to a world where regulation is tightening. It is very clear now that the US is largely on board that we're going to see tighter regulation and some form of carbon caps be put in place. We will see carbon markets emerging. We estimate by twenty thirty the carbon market could be the size of today's oil market, uh, at approximately one trillion dollars. And we're seeing business investing. We've seen investment in renewables rise from about twenty eight billion in two thousand four to about seventy one billion in 2006 so the future strategies of companies in 2020 will have to take resource issues firmly uh, on the table fourth challenge is the interaction between society and corporations we've talked about the technological revolution and its relationship between companies and consumers but let's just step back and look a bit further the role and behavior of companies in 2020 will be watched even more closely than it is today. Business beliefs that we might take for granted, shareholder value, free trade, intellectual property rights, profit repatriation, are ideas that are not even accepted, let alone understood, in some markets. So the 2020 company will have to pay very close attention to grassroots movements, and socio-political issues, and place a set of early strategic bets. Successful companies will make those the core to some of their new enterprises and to their brand building, look at the success of Toyota and the Prius and how it's positioned that company uh, in an important socio-political trend. And we believe that the best companies will focus on five key issues to help them manage these socio-political issues. One, risk. They will know how to spot and evaluate socio political trends that compose a risk to their core business. Two, renewal. How to turn these socio political trends into new business and industry shaping opportunities rather than fighting them all the time. Relationships. They'll know how to build relationships, where to build relationships with the key stakeholders. They'll worry about their reputation, how to build trust around the company's brand and the values to which it aspires. And they will worry, of course, about regulation and how to gain and sustain a competitive advantage through regulation. But the whole issue about your relationship with society will be critical around the world for the global company of 2020. And finally, of our list of five opportunities, is engaging with governments or the whole issue of the public sector crisis. Expectations against the public sector continue to rise. We all want more from our public services. And productivity gains in the public sector are absolutely critical. And there are implications, therefore, for the company of 2020 and how it engages not only in creating wealth, but also in the delivery of public services. Um, And that's because many countries are enormously challenged, challenged by the changing demographics. Um, We've all heard the statistics Uh, to to deliver the current level of support by 2030 the argument goes you have to increase the tax burden in the United States by 40% or by 175% in Japan. These are simply unthinkable figures. Now obviously increases in wealth and in corporate profitability and personal wealth can help fund this but that won't be enough and so something has to be done And, and in the emerging economies the challenge in the way is at the other end of the spectrum how to, how to provide enough employment opportunities for a continuing go, growing labor pool. So in all this, what is the role of the public company, of the company of 2020? Well, first of all, creating wealth. Prosperity will fund a lot of the problems that we're facing in the public sector. But second, we do believe the delivery of public services uh, witnessed the rise of public private uh, uh, public-private partnerships around the globe. So meeting the public sector crisis will require the engagement of a broad range of stakeholders, not least private sector institutions. And global companies shouldn't seek to distance themselves from this engagement. Indeed, the scale of the challenge, we believe, will represent a huge opportunity for companies. So, we've talked about five opportunities or challenges for the global company of 2020. And what I'd like to do now... Is turn to what they mean in practice for the way in which these companies will need to organise and manage themselves by focusing on five implications of these challenges. These implications span the need to deliver short-term performance while also building a company that can be healthy and successful in the long term. Now, the first managerial challenge is going to really shock you. They need to make money. We can wave our arms around and talk about all sorts of interesting organizational theories, etc., but I'm sorry, it gets pretty basic at the end of the day. The company of 2020 is going to have to continue to make money, and I don't care whether its shareholders are public, private, hedge funds, or sovereign wealth funds. At the end of the day, they're going to need to make money. Um, And the managers of global companies in 2020 will have to deliver both attractive short-term earnings and convince investors that they have long-term growth options to 2030. And those imperatives, the economic imperative, will be with us in 2020 as it is with us today. They must deliver short and long-term performance. Now, how will they do this? Well, there is a common theme, and this will be about a careful assessment of the risk and reward opportunities facing that individual company. What businesses and risks should the company focus on around the globe, and which should it avoid? And the best companies will think about this around five key steps. They will identify, monitor, and critically value the major risks they face. They will decide which risks the company is the natural owner of and which it should lay off to others or even sell to others. They will ensure that the company retains the right amount of risk capacity, enough to avoid downturns, not too much, which produces too low returns. And managing that risk capital will be critical. They will embed risk and reward decision-making in every element of the company and provide the required analytical tools. Many of them have actually been honed in the financial services industry but are spreading to industry after industry. And they will make sure that there's the right oversight to all this. So faced with a myriad of opportunities, the best global companies will actually have very fine-tuned processes and analytics to make risk and reward trade-offs in whatever industry they may be. Now, the next requirement, strange one, which is to use complexity to your advantage. Up to now, we've tended to think of complexity as something to avoid, simply making efforts to simplify organizational structures as much as we possibly can. Frankly, as a result of that, we've often often created impossible jobs with individuals in the middle of some very complicated matrix where they report four ways in dotted lines, straight lines, and all sorts of things. And even worse, probably there have been some management consultants involved in the middle of all that. Now, uh, if you turn this around and think of complexity uh, as a challenge to be managed rather than avoided, we think some pretty interesting things will result. In fact, some pretty interesting profits good result. Managed well, complexity can also increase the resilience of a company by enhancing its ability to adapt to a changing world. Now, the benefits of complexity can be boiled down to three. The knowledge and insights that come from connecting so many dots. In theory, if you're touching more and more elements of the world, if you could somehow make that all come together, you must have a competitive advantage. Secondly, robustness in decision-making, because you can simply test things against more examples. And third, an interesting one, opacity to competitors. If you're complex, it's very hard for anyone else to work out what in the world you're actually doing. Now, in the past, this has created some problems. But we believe that um, uh, corporations face two types of complexity, institutional and individual complexity. The former concerns the number and nature of interactions within a company. The latter, the way in which individuals, employees and managers, actually experience and deal with this complexity. Now, in the past, corporations have focused exclusively on institutional complexity. Now, we think going forward this will no longer be the case. Winning companies will actually manage institutional complexity to create value, actually enhancing their ability to take on more and more complex situations because that creates more opportunity. To make that possible, what they'll actually focus on is individual complexity. Are we creating jobs that individuals can actually do? Don't worry how complicated the org chart looks. Are the individual jobs doable? And if they are, because they have clear roles, clear accountability, and very clear processes, that will be a competitive advantage because you'll be able to touch more of the world. So managing complexity will be an interesting challenge for the global companies of 2020. Third managerial challenge. Change. Now, this is the point at which we could really slip into consultant jargon if we're not careful. So I'm going to hold me to account if we start getting out of control here. But the formula is very simple. If the world has changed a lot in the last 20 years, it's going to change a lot in the next 12 years. And if companies think they can have a static model which is working in 2008, and have it still working in 2020, they're probably wrong. And these are very big companies. So the question is, how can you change? And actually, the technology of changing large companies will be important to survive into the future. Now, it involves a very snazzy chart, but it's really quite simple. It's about understanding the context of your company's situation, setting a very clear aspiration of where you want to get to, how do we want to be different because the world is different, providing, frankly, focused leadership, which says that's where we're going and there are no arguments about it, having a very clear set of new ideas to get you there, and having a process so that every month, every quarter, every year, the company is a different company than it was before. And the global company of 2020, given that it will be operating in a changing environment, will have to know how to do this. It will have to know how to do this. The status quo will hold for very few industries, and so being able to change very large companies will be very important. And we know those that haven't have suffered. Look at the U.S. auto sector, which, frankly, was unable to change. Um, The winners are able to change. Now, at the end of the day, this is all about people. And to get the best from people, to enable them to change the way they behave, you've got to have strong leaders. And the leaders and the companies of 2020 will have leaders who are very special people, able to work across different cultures and to drive change. Think about how, how special they will be. They'll be leading companies in some cases of over 200,000 employees across 18, 19, different cultures, and they will need them to adapt their techniques um, uh, and their approaches in unison. So these leaders will use techniques that we don't think of as business leadership. They will use things that, frankly, we're more used to in the political world. Emblematic stories, key messages, continuous communication. They will appeal to their staff's emotions. They may even adopt a little crying on the stump because their PowerPoint presentation simply won't be effective, which is why I'll move quickly to another slide. Um, leading global companies will actually need multiple leaders of this type. We'll have the high-profile CEO. Of course we will. But an actually, a company of 200,000 people actually going to need many people like this. Probably GE of the United States is the best-known company for developing leaders like this, multiple leaders of this type. But we're going to find more and more companies are going to have to do it they're going to enable to move companies of this size fast enough. Which gets us to the fourth challenge, which is around talent. It's an obvious point, much written about, but actually the global company of 2020 is going to have some opportunities and some challenges in this field. Um, first of all, talent supply and demand will become probably more volatile as we see emerging pockets of excellence flourishing in unusual areas. Uh, for instance, uh, in the film industry, Prague has emerged in the last decade as a key location for filming uh, Hollywood movies because there happens to be a development of uh, capabilities there. Now, global companies for 2020, when seeking out this sort of talent, will have some advantages. All of you sitting here thinking about where you, what you might do next, a global company offers you enormous opportunities around the world, probably state-of-the-art training, Incredible, different range of business and functional opportunities, but they have to balance that with the probability that they may well be perceived as impersonal. And why would I? I'm one out of 200,000. Right? Why wouldn't I join the 50-person company? Uh, in fact, we do believe that smaller global companies, that the companies I talked about earlier, the 50 to 1,000 size, will uh, attract a lot of talent and maybe um, they will generate huge amounts of value per staff member compared with the goliaths. Compare Google with General Motors and we'll see a very, very different picture. But attracting talent will be critical. And now we go to our last managerial challenge, knowledge management. You know, we think knowledge management will become a central challenge uh, for global companies in 2020. And the reason is we're creating more knowledge faster. The challenge for the global company of 2020, which in theory should have enormous competitive advantage because it has so many more nodes to touch and so much more knowledge at its disposal in theory, is to organize this knowledge around topic areas, providing network members with leaders and training members for success. Formal networks stimulate interactions that are sponsored and encouraged by the organization and therefore can be managed. An example is Dresden Kleinwort the investment bank, uses wikis for its projects. Traffic on the firm's 2,500-plus page wiki, used by a quarter of the firm's workforce, has surpassed that of the company's intranet. And there has been a 75% drop in emails connected with the projects which use the wiki. And frankly... We've got McKinsey up there. We now have our own, what we call the Wikipedia, inside, um, Wikipedia, inside McKinsey, uh, where you know, we find enormous advantage of having knowledge networks like this within our firm. So the company of 2020 will need to prepare themselves to allow for knowledge networks to thrive, because it is a great competitive advantage for them, both internally and by tapping into external resources. These will be open networks. And they must have the knowledge management systems to take a piece of knowledge and apply it from India in Toronto. And that will be a great skill. So let me sum up. I believe the global company of 2020, however designed, will face a series of five market or revenue opportunities and need to address five key managerial challenges. The opportunities are around managing portfolios effectively, capitalizing on the technological revolution, understanding and anticipating the needs of scarce resources, shaping an effective corporate social agenda, and engaging with governments around the public crisis. And the managerial challenges are, first of all, don't forget you do have to make money, would help, um, using complexity to their advantage, making transformational change happen, you cannot sit still, developing talent strategies for what could be seen as impersonal companies and managing knowledge. Now, that's enough from me in some formal comments. I hope it's raised some thoughts and ideas uh, with you, and let's go to questions. Thank you.
0: Well, uh, it's been a very uh, serious and... Careful analysis, as one might have expected, we're going from the drivers to the uh, management implications, um, and I think this has given us all a lot to talk about. Um, we're now going to go over to the question and answer session. I think there are people dotted around uh, with microphones. If I could just make a few remarks first, please, um, um, when you get up, to, when you speak, please give your name and organisation, and if you could uh, ask questions. Uh, rather than uh, give a second uh, lecture of your own. <laughs> um, I think just to say that, I mean, um, um, on the various implications for management, uh, the, the, the one that was a surprise to me, and although a nice one, was the um, LSE, of course, is a very uh, complex and incoherent place, and I've never, I have to say, seen it as anything other than a hindrance, but now I will go away and reflect on this as a huge uh, advantage. T- t- tremendous competitive advantage. Mm. So, um,
2: <laughs> perhaps
0: we can take the first question with the back there.
2: I have a couple of questions. My name is Ellen Reinders, and I work for Lloyd's TSB. Uh, the first question is about city groups. Um, we know that the economy of scale scales. Uh, it seems that they even work in there, so I would like to know According to you, what happens to you? Because there is a lot of talks about breaking the whole bank and dividing investment banking and retail banking. And so, on. the second question is probably a personal one about um, what kind of criteria do you think, or what kind of skills as the new labour force for in like 2020 we should have? What kind of additional skills apart from language, of course?
1: Um, I'm going to dodge your first question uh, uh, because I'm I'm not going to talk about individual institutions in public. Um, uh, I would say uh, that um, there is a lot of commentary these days that the very large banks are unmanageable, shouldn't they be broken up etc. I believe the the logic uh, of uh, the, the values of scale and scope are real and that we just haven't quite yet got the managerial technology in place to take advantage of it uh, and so I wouldn't rush to uh, sign the death warrant for large banks um, now uh, your second question was talent needs in this in- environment um, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll highlight two Along, a, along a, you've, you've talked about language but two um, uh, one is mathematical and statistical skills uh, the world of management has gone through a gradual process over the last 25, 30 years of moving from an art to being more of a science. There is still an element of art to it. The charismatic leader, creating followership, all those soft skills are absolutely critical. But what is clear is that the managers of today and the managers of 2020 will have a set of analytical and mathematical tools at their disposal and their comfort in using them, um, which will be a step from where we are today. Um, Actually, I was uh, talking to a leading British academic uh, the other day, and she was uh, apart from Howard. Of course, it wasn't Howard, but it was another leading uh, academic. Um, And they were saying, um, I was talking about my children, and they said, well, what's my youngest daughter? And they said, well, what's she interested in? She's really interested in, in English. She loves English. This person just looked at me and said, make sure she keeps up her maths. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, which is going to be a challenge, let me tell you. Um, uh, but So I think those, those skills will be, those tools will be absolutely important, critical. The second is, um, and this is a cliche these days, but I do believe it's true, uh, is adaptability. Okay. Um, like it or not, Either within the, you can, it does, this doesn't mean lifetime employment is over, but it does mean if you're going to stay with a company, one company for a long time, your role and the skills you're going to use are going to change. Now, right? um, so for some people, that means they're going to move companies. We all hear about people are moving companies much more. Maybe. What is true is if you, whatever happens, the skills you use during your career changes. And so the idea that you leave, leave post grad, you go through some training program, you're now X years old, and now your career is set. It's just not true any longer. It simply isn't true. You have to change. And recognizing that is very important.
3: Hi. Um, thank you for the interesting talk. Uh, my name is Yana from Isaac, UK. Um, it just builds on the second point from the lady there. You talk um, about talent, and I think that's actually, for me, the most important point on there, because if you haven't got the best people for your company, then it's very difficult to be the best company. So I think it's very important to make sure you get those right people, the best people into your company. So my question for you is, how will the company of 2020 make sure that it gets the best people? And by that, i would break it down to one, what will the workplace look like? Um, Will it still be a 9-to-5 workplace? Will there be pension schemes? Will there not be pension schemes? Um, will it be a, a work environment, something like Google, for example, where um, it's very innovative, it's a very fun culture? Do you think that's sort of more of a fad, or do you think that's a direction that you know, successful global businesses are going to? Um, and then my second point tying into that would be, uh, how, how will they access that talent? How will these companies promote themselves? I mean, obviously, we're going to move away from very standard stuff like careers fairs and other things, but where do you see that going in? Does
1: that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, how long have we got? <laughs> um, so I'm just going to hit you with some uh, hi- highlights first of all I'm going to challenge the view that the global company of 2020 will be sort of uh, sort of, a large cappuccino bar um, uh, um, you know it will still have a set of processes which are pretty repetitive and where there will be people involved in them used efficiently and using, you know, Toyota management systems and Lean and Six Sigma and whatever you like, right? But there will still be a lot of people doing pretty repetitive tasks and paid not huge amounts of money. Right? And so the global company of 2020 will have to be able to motivate and excite and attract people into those roles. Recognizing, by the way, those roles may change. So let's not get too excited about right? And and attracting people, by the way, many of whom may be located miles away from the headquarters, and and the brick thing will have moved on to some other locations, but we will have centers of excellence and low cost for particular processes. So that will continue. I see no reason to think that will change. Um, I do think, however, that even those entities or parts of a company will be more connected to the rest of the company uh, than the past. Uh, and will be more reliant upon information exchange and adapting what they do over time to become more and more efficient. Then there will be a growing percentage of the staff will be in what what is fashionably called knowledge workers, right? And the question you're asking is, well, how do you attract those into your company? Um, And I think you have to, you know, obviously it's something we worry about as a firm. And when you start to worry about it as a firm, you soon work out that this is a highly segmented answer. Surprise, surprise, all of you in this room don't have the same set of aspirations, values, or make the same trade-offs in exactly the same way. Probably, however, you can be segmented to think about particular things that appeal to you. And so as as we talked about in the the chat earlier uh, this evening, about how in serving consumers, companies are going to have to understand different segments, dig deep, really understand what's driving people's behaviors when they buy, you have to have the same sets of skills in terms of thinking about what you're going to do to attract people to your firm. So when we think about attracting people to our firm, you know, we have to, we know that the whole group of things that really interest people is the opportunity to have impact, the opportunity to work with exciting colleagues, the opportunity to work on the leading edge issues. But as important for many people, not everybody, as important for many people are things like how much are you going to get paid or Um, I actually, you know, want to be part of a company which I think is doing good. I want to go home feeling proud. Now, some other people don't care. They get up in the morning, as long as the work's interesting, they make some money, they're not very interested in whether they're moving the world forward. So understanding that there are vast different segments in the talent group you're going after and appealing to them will be very, very important. It will be about making people feel emotionally attached to your company will be a very, very important element in a very competitive game. Okay. Where are we going? This guy here. Thank you. Um, I work as an independent uh, consultant helping companies with outsourcing. In a previous life, I used to work with one of your competitors. Um, First, which of these points are less relevant or not relevant to a good organization today? Uh, Second, do you envisage the micro-trending continuing continuing to an extent that you are targeting to a consumer of one, both from an individual viewpoint as well as from a sort of managing from a cultural viewpoint? Mm -hmm. Um, So let me deal with the second first. Uh, in some businesses it will clearly be possible to create you know the market of one product right or service um, I'm uh, frankly personally less optimistic that that will prove to be economically viable across the range of businesses and I think people will continue to operate against segments they will tend to group people together they may have multiple segments but the group, group people together Um in terms of offering products and services. This will particularly be true as long as businesses have a relatively long cycles of development. So you'll hear vast, you'll see vast differences. Some of them, it will simply have to be a segmented approach. It will be hard, I believe, by 2020 to produce the Boeing jet at the, at the unit of one. Right? It's going to be a bit tricky. Right? Um, will it be possible to provide some online services targeted Right? will eBay end up having your own, frankly, your own personal way of approaching, probably right? so we're going to see a range of that um, your uh, first question was, so what's new some version, it was a polite yours was a polite version of what's new right? um, uh, and the answer is not a lot um, things have changed I think you would all probably accept that the um, knowledge and the social agenda has risen Right? a bit on the, if you'd given this talk 10 years ago, well, it wasn't here, and um, probably the resource issues. Um, but I think, I think that, uh, again, these look disarmingly simple. All you've got to do is make some trade-offs and manage complexity and change your company every so often, and what's your problem? Um, but in fact, the problem here is that it's the execution underneath this, which is so very, very hard. And it's all about the colleague up there who talked about people. Um, It is having extraordinary people who can cut through this and can make transformational change happen, for instance, who are the inspirational leaders. Um, And so the challenge is to take these themes and have people who can actually make a difference. And that will be a differentiator for the winning companies.
3: Hi, my name is Sunil. I'm a master's student at LSE. My question has more to do with entrepreneurship. In the run-up to 2020, uh, what are the chances of success for entrepreneurs to challenge corporations who have the advantage of global scale of operations, access to government lobbying? So what? how can an entrepreneur challenge a global corporation, startups?
1: Oh, well, I think, uh, look, I'd say again what I said right at the beginning. I think... If we have a definition of the global company of 2020 as the behemoth, we're missing the point. It's already true and it will be even more true in the next decade. The global company can be 50 people, 100 people, where entrepreneurs can play globally. If you set up an investment bank today from ground zero, you almost certainly build it globally. You build the ability to trade globally. You build the ability to advise globally. You have some people in Asia, some people in the States, some people in Europe. Even if it's a tiny advisory firm, from day one, you're building it globally. So I think uh, the opportunity here for attackers will be to attack on multiple paths in multiple geographies at once, rather than today when we tend to say, build your base in your home country and then gradually step out the opportunity will be there to say, well, why do I need to do that? I can can replicate the processes which have been so successful in my home market in another market very, very quickly. So the the attackers will be global quickly, and that will be one of the challenges for the, the larger companies to recognize that when an attacker comes after you, they'll come after you in many markets at once.
0: The trend I wanted to ask you about was, oh, sorry, I am a student here, um, was was social capitalism. Because mm-hmm. if you look at that, you know, it tackles, um, well, it takes advantage of a lot of the opportunities, right? Social agendas on the forefront, um, government thing, usually huge internet component. From the challenge side, you know, it can get talent, you know, as you alluded to earlier. Um, but, uh, you know, as Product Red has shown, a lot of them skip the sort of economic imperative. They haven't been able to bridge that. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you sort of what's your point of view on the trend? Do you think it's here to last? You know, will there be a a social market, alternative market? Uh, And who's doing it well? Which companies do you think sort of have bridged that economic imperative well?
1: So give me an example of what you're talking about. Uh, A product red, for example, the Bono. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have to say I'm going to fold that (coughs) uh, issue Uh, under number four on the left. Um, I think engaging with what is often called the third sector is is part of what the global company of 2020, whatever its size, will have to do and already are doing, frankly. Um, And they'll do that for a variety of reasons. If you talk to managers today about why are they engaging uh, in social issues and with the third sector and with the whole social capital movement, why are they doing that? The answers are quite interesting. They will be the obvious ones, the ones which get everyone nervous, which are about brand building, association, et cetera. But far more powerful are actually we learn a lot in terms of innovative processes. And finally, the most powerful one of all is our staff expect us to. We have no choice. Right? So that as long as we have, frankly, a much more educated, socially aware labor force entering these companies, this movement is going to be alive and well. Because, frankly, all of you, as you join these companies, are going to want to join companies which are engaged on these issues. And that's critical. That's the very nature of the companies and who works for them are changing. Not at the expense of number one on the right, right? but as part of solving for number one on the right. So I think these these trends are alive and well. uh, And there's no sign... In any of the trends in terms of consumer needs branding, employees, talent that they're going to go away none at all and that's why item number four on this chart on the left is extremely important it's not nice to have right There's a little sort of you know icing on the cake this is critical to how these companies have to operate if they're going to engage with their consumers and attract the sort of talent they want
3: Hi, Uh, my name is Adam Moncadeco. I'm a
2: student here at the LSC. Mm -hmm. Uh, My question is, 2 I guess, two parts. Mm -hmm. Uh, You are a management consultant at McKinsey. Given you say the company, what will a company look like in 2020? What will the role of a management consultant look like Mm -hmm. in 2020? Mm -hmm. Will it be more challenges? Will it be declining challenges? Uh, Also, my other question is, in the United States, uh, we're having a presidential election. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the Democrats could take back the White House. And given there is disenchantment with free trade and if the United States is to become insular again, uh, will that affect essentially global economies or are we at the point of no return?
1: So I'll deal with the second first. I think personal view is that um, uh, this is beyond the ability of politicians to control. Right, uh, A good thing too. Uh, they can move it one way or another slightly at the edges, but the consumer benefits so much from globalization, and they vote, um, that uh, the narrow interests of particular industries which are under pressure, et cetera, will get uh, overturned, uh, and most politicians understand that. There's a lot of waving of arms during an election campaign in particular states, Right. Um, so I think we may see some changes. But more importantly, if you look at global trade flows, right, the United States is important, but, you know, of declining importance. So the U- the US, can go, U.S. can go protectionist. It's a very, very different picture than it would have been 30 years ago in terms of what, of what its implications are. Um, so I, don't th- I think that's a, you know, we're going to have some bumps along the way, but uh, the, the trends are pretty clear. Um, you, your first question, let me broaden it to advisors. Rather than management consultants, Um, uh, I think it will be no different from what has been true for the last 20 years, which is the the world of advising these sorts of companies is brutal. Because their capabilities grow and advance very, very rapidly, and their needs change very, very rapidly. And so, that any advisory organization, investment bank, consulting firm, lawyer, whatever, which doesn't change very rapidly and stay ahead of the capabilities of that company, quickly dies right? um, because it's you know they ask for the, the most demanding questions uh, and they want them answered globally and they want them answered quickly. Uh, I don't think we'll see any change, which has been the last 20 years, let me tell you, we've seen an enormous evolution in professional services to these sorts of companies and we'll see it continue, a constant race to stay ahead, which is exciting, by the way.
2: Hi there. My name is Dimitris. I work for Zurich Financial Services. Uh, I'd like to ask a question related to the technological advancements. Sorry? The technological advancements. And we've seen a lot of change in the last 15 years. Things that weren't foreseeable or were in someone's imagination, like the connectivity, the advancement of the internet, Uh, the mobile phones and everything that's changed in the way the consumers work and the companies work. Uh, So I'd like to ask you, apart from the wiki and a couple of examples you gave before, which other emerging technological trends do you see changing the way the global company of 2020 will operate? thanks.
1: Yeah. um, I do think we're already starting to see it. Um, By the way, many of these trends you talk about, when you do the history of them, are much longer than people recognize. True, but, it, but, but the point is that it wasn't like they suddenly happened in three years. There was a long right, season getting there. Um, and we're already starting to see it uh, in the application of biology and the lessons of biology to the corporate world. Right? Uh, it gets partly to my point about complexity. Um, <coughs> um, you're starting to see a lot of, uh, particularly knowledge companies, think about uh, the lessons of biological development and how it can be applied to organisational development, and I think we'll see a lot of lessons from that from that apply one to the other. Um, if you were to look for a technological change which has been pretty constant and is only accelerating, you'd have to look at healthcare, the bro- broadly defined healthcare, right, as the next revolution, which will create a whole a whole variety of new product opportunities um, in areas we're not used to, right, outside healthcare. developing synthetic products in whole areas. Uh, So I think that's one whole field. Um, If you believe the resource scarcity issue, um, I think you can probably shorten all the forecasts uh, that are out there. It would be an interesting bet to shorten all the forecasts out there around um, energy uh, efficiency uh, and climate products, if you like. Um, If the pressures are as we expect them to be, Why wouldn't we expect some version of Moore's law to start to apply to this sort of area and suddenly see an enormous takeoff, whereas to date it's been pretty its like that. We might see a takeoff there, which could have enormous implication for our product development. And the final one is, as I said before, the continued application, which will be sort of less spectacular but probably as important, the continued application of mathematical and statistical techniques to areas of management and decision making, which in the past have been considered to be requ- require human judgment, right? and th- you know the history of the last twenty years has been areas where oh no only the wise man or lady can decide, and someone's unpicked it and said no that's not true. This problem can be analysed statistically, and we can come to a much better risk-adjusted set of decisions than having the wise person sitting in the corner. And I think that technology. Invisible technology, no new products, no sexy, um, uh, you know, ads on trains, etc. This This application of statistical technologies to more and more managerial decision-making will be a very important change in business, which will continue.
0: I'm only going to take a couple more uh, questions so people have had their hands up. Uh, that later.
2: Juliet from City University, um, you mentioned the very beginning of the presentation talking about the headquarters from break. Do you specifically mean sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, the break headquarters you mentioned in the very beginning of the presentation. Mm. Do you specifically mean the local companies from break countries that going global, setting up their headquarters in their own country, mm. or do you mean the multinational companies setting their headquarters or moving their headquarters to break countries? Or both ways. And if you can comment um, specifically on um, the advantages and disadvantages of Chinese local companies going global within the next 10 years. Mm. Thank
1: you. Um, well, I mean, I think as I tried to intimate, you can think about all sorts of models. I think we can see um, uh, the whole concept of the headquarters as a, as a start may be a out-of-date concept, right? in in the world we live in today, you tell me why do these companies need to be headquartered in particular places and in many cases you actually analyze what's in the headquarters versus what's outside and the headquarters is becoming smaller and smaller and an incredibly networked concept Uh, so first of all I think we've got to get over that idea Um, I do believe that the successful Chinese global leading uh, Chinese companies will have enormous numbers of people outside China and if they're going to be successful in competing globally they will have decision makers outside China right? now then you ask the question where's the headquarters well you'll say well it's in you know Shanghai well is it really and the same will apply for the Western Company right? though that its headquarters may be you know in St. James's Square but the question will be actually where is where is decision making taking place and the answer will be on some you know Uh, high definition video conference that's where decision making is taking place Um, and that's more and more and that's true now it will just be fully advanced Um, and you know for tax purposes and legal purposes people will have headquarters Uh, but when you really ask from a managerial point of view where's the headquarters it's going to be either moving in multiple places or nowhere
3: Uh, my name is Sean, I uh, work for the Foreign Policy Center in London. Uh, you, you discussed uh, the social agenda, but you haven't actually mentioned corporate social responsibility or corporate responsibility, I mean the term. Mm-hmm. How do you evaluate uh, the CS agenda in the past decade that's been developing very fast? Um, do, you, do you think companies, especially multinationals, are they really delivering the social impact that they claim to um, what do you see uh, the key, key challenges then, uh, in, the, in the next few years? And given the uh, increasing importance of the emerging markets, um, what do you think companies from China, India, et cetera, uh, will impact on the uh, CSR agenda?
1: Well, I, I, I tried to say that on the number four on the uh, left of this slide is going to be absolutely critical. I think, I think CSR is being replaced right, as a co- concept because um, corporate social it has a sort of there's this adjunct thing we have our normal agenda and then we have our CSR agenda right? and I don't think that makes much sense any longer the two are intertwined um, people make decisions about where they want to interact with the socio-political world around what their business is they make those decisions around what their staff are interested in and what their consumers are interested in so the two overlap um, and uh, so I think we're going to see that become CSR is going to this concept of having a CSR person. I think will, will um, evaporate over time as a concept. Uh, secondly, I think the more the more focused companies, which have thought carefully around what's relevant to our consumers, what skills do we have, and what turns our people on, are having a real effect. Having a real effect. Whereas people who randomly say, "I think we're going to do stuff," Right, and probably have a bit of a random walk but people who think through this carefully and say what is it that we do outside, uh, of, outside uh, manufacturing our core product that is relevant to our consumers reinforces our brand is relevant to our skill base that we can actually do it well and our staff want to get involved in right? they are having real impact having real impact um, and I think it will only grow it will only grow Thanks a lot, Dominic. Uh,
0: um, I think um, on behalf of everyone here and the Department of Management and the School, I'd like to thank you a lot for this. It's been a great thing. I think um, what you've shown us today is the advantages of uh, of um, treating management as a science and um, thinking rigorously about problems and trying to use what's happened in the past and some idea of drives and trends to think about what is going to be needed in the future. So in some sense, it's been an example exam- of what you were describing as what, uh, the way the whole subject is going to have to go. Uh, and I think that the questions have indicated just how much uh, um, the people attending, particularly the students have got out of this. Uh, so I'd like to thank you on behalf of all of us. I'd also just like to tell the audience that there is a second this week in this uh, 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 series of uh, lectures, global uh, management lectures, which is called Sarchi who's talking um, on Wednesday on the question of uh, sleeping beauty awakening the American dream, which might address uh, uh, some issues raised in the question earlier. But once again, thanks very much indeed.